Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Hello, and welcome back to the Neo Jurassic Podcast. I'm your host, Bry, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the second installment of our two-parter, Dinochirus Trificus. So in last week's episode, we were introduced to the idea of a herd of Dinochirus establishing a breeding colony in the Everglades and the potential messiness that would arise trying to deal with such a crisis. In my opinion, people would undoubtedly find the charisma of these hulking bizarre beasts utterly irresistible, and economic opportunities like Dinochirus tourism, for instance, would no doubt spring up around them in no time at all. As we learned, a very similar situation is currently playing out down in Colombia. We spoke with Dr. Jonathan Shuren, who has been researching the ecological impacts of 100-plus feral hippopotamus that are flourishing and spreading throughout Colombia's waterways. The Colombian government have found themselves at an impasse as to how to manage the population. Are they to be accepted as a naturalized species, or do measures need to be taken to prevent them from expanding their range and population even further, as they no doubt will? Before we go any further, though, I would like to apologize very sincerely for the quality of the audio at certain points in this episode's interview. I unfortunately encountered some technical issues during our conversation, and my end of the interview got pretty gnarled up. I hope you all don't find it too distracting and you're able to make out the audio. I had to do some uh, re-recording of certain lines that were just hopelessly lost to the digital ether. Um, this episode may have been cursed in some capacity as I encountered some type of technical snafu or disaster at every step of the way, and I hope it's not too apparent, but it probably is. Anyway, this week we're going to be headed to South Florida and hear about the current invasive crisis unfurling throughout the Everglades and beyond. Granted, the invasive critters are significantly smaller and less exotic than either the Dinochirus or the Hippopotamus, but they're no less destructive. Guiding us through the murky waters and thick reeds of the Everglades is Jenna Cole. Jenna is a self-described reptile researcher, biologist, and graduate student at the University of Florida. To start things off, Jenna is going to tell us about the path that led her towards conservation research in the Everglades, and also about the work she's been doing to mitigate a booming population of very hungry, very prolific, and pretty cute in my opinion, invasive tegu lizards. So, uh, let's see. I actually came down to Florida in uh, over the summer in July 2016, and I came down as a tech. Um, so I came down to just to do field work straight out of uh, undergrad and was thinking about grad school, wasn't sure if I was going to pursue a second degree or not, but got a great opportunity working uh, down in South Florida and thought, you know, why not? I might as well uh, take a chance and, and see where I end up. And once I got down here, uh, the Tegu project was um, ready, ready, like very readily available um, to be worked on. It was, it takes a lot of effort. So that is the project um, when I, when I started working with that, I was put on most frequently. And uh, eventually after two years of working on it as a tech, um, I, 
started managing the project. So I've been managing it since 2018 and have been working, uh, working since then. Uh, so it just kind of, it's not like I came down here, I guess, specifically to work with Tegus or anything like that. It's just that I happened to show up around the same time that work with them was really, really peaking. Uh, Burmese pythons get a lot of attention here in South Florida. They're big, they're bad, um, they're impressive. And so, you know, they, they tend to, to get the spotlight a lot, but the tegu is an animal that's been in South Florida for uh, quite some time now as well, and just doesn't seem to get as much recognition, but is definitely just as, a, just as much as a, of a problem. Um, so the work with that had just started ramping up when I came down and I just happened to kind of uh, fall in line with it. And uh, I've been working on the tegus down here ever since. So tell me, when when did the tegus officially become like a concern? When when did their little wanted posters start getting slapped up on the palm trees of South Florida? Uh, oh gosh, off the top of my head, I think it's probably the early 2000s they kind of showed up. Um, I think there was one main introduction and uh, they just kind of started showing up all over. So we, we do have um, two populations of them in Florida, the one that I work with down in the um, Homestead, Miami-Dade County area. And then there is another population in Hillsborough County, which is um, like Western Central Florida. Oh, that's that's uh, where I'm from, actually. Yeah, so there's there's some up there as well. Um, and I didn't know that. That's crazy. Any particular yeah. part of Hillsborough County that you're aware of? Oh, I couldn't tell you exactly where, but they're in Hillsborough County. Um, I don't believe the population is as as large necessarily as they are down here in South Florida. Um, the the area that they're in here in South Florida is is really huge. It's a you know they're and they spread from the natural area into a lot of like the, the developmental areas. And I believe Hillsboro, a lot of that area is they're in like a lot of pine, a lot of scrub habitat, rockland habitat. So, um, I but I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how how much bigger. Um, the South Florida population necessarily is compared to, to Hillsborough. So how is the distinction made between an introduced non-native species and an invasive species? And how long does it take to assess all the necessary data to make that call? So that's a really good question. Um, I actually have, I've actually I've had people ask me that. Um, we get a lot of questions, especially regarding like other introduced exotics that are not necessarily considered invasives, like the chameleons are a good one everyone always brings up. Generally, um, an animal that is considered an invasive species is one that has been shown to do um, damage to the ecosystem. So a lot of those terms are just like based off of the research that has or maybe the lack thereof. Um, so chameleons are a great one. People generally don't think of them as being an invasive animal because they live in trees, they eat bugs, you know, they're not really competing with anything. They just kind of hang out. Right. And so those get a lot of attention because people think they're really cool. People love to look for them. I know they are, have, they have pockets all over South Florida and I've heard some even go up as far as like the Orlando area and even wow. further North. Um, I'm not sure how. Veils, veils have been known to uh, eat smaller lizards. smaller lizards, so yeah. I would imagine they'd be a threat to uh, green anoles if they're in the same yeah, genus. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's where um, the lack of research really comes in. So there's not really a lot of attention going towards the chameleons. Um, 
that I'm aware of at least. I think mostly because uh, a lot of the populations are like seed, seeded populations. They're from individuals who put them, who release them on purpose and then with the intent to breed. So yeah. a lot of them get, they get moved around really frequently. As soon as you, um, you know, are aware of one population, if word gets out, that population gets moved. So it's not always the easiest to, to learn about their diet or their habits or anything like that. They're also pocket size, you know, people go and pluck them out of trees and then, you know, they'll wipe the spot clean. Now with, with other animals, like the tegus, for example, um, they're not as easily, um, not as cryptic and well, just as cryptic, but not as, not as easily to, to like move around as cryptically like chameleons, you can pick them up and move them around. It might be a little bit before anybody figures out they're there, but tegus, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be there and you're going to know it very quickly. So, uh, but back to the, the root of your question is really just, it's just the research and how much damage they're able to be shown to do to the environment. If there's a lack of study or a lack of, of knowledge regarding an animal that's been introduced, um, you can't say, oh, this is an invasive without having the science to back it up, um, essentially. Right. And so you can say, well, this animal is most likely going to become invasive or is most likely going to have an impact. But, you know, we can't say that something is going to have an impact if we haven't researched it. So that's going to be the, the big issue. Um, and as far as how long it takes to give them that status, it just depends on how long it takes us to, you know, meet other researchers to figure out exactly what they're doing. Um, diet is like the biggest and easiest way, I, in my opinion, to look at. It's also, you know, one of the things I'm most interested in is, is diet. But by looking at the diet, you can see direct predation upon different um, native animals. And by that, you can assess the threat. So it's like if they're focusing all of their energy eating specifically one type of animal or like the pythons, they eat mammals. And we were able to see the decline in mammals very quickly. Um, so it, it's, it's that kind of stuff, but even pythons, um, they're so cryptic. They were been introduced for a while before we were really even able to grasp, um, how many of them might potentially be out there or even really start to notice. So it can, it can take years, um, to come to see a direct impact, but you can usually, um, use models to come up with an estimated impact and go from there to kind of determine like the threat. A species has on the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I have to be honest. I've been completely uh, fascinated by all of the non-native species that are being dispersed across the world. Uh, Florida and Hawaii being two of the most significant ones that I'm interested in. Um, Hawaii, of course, has you know Jackson's chameleons all over the place that are similarly harvested, like the veiled chameleons are in Florida. And there's uh, gold dust day geckos from Madagascar there, and dart frogs. Um, are you aware presently of just how many non-native species have become, uh, have established like uh, workable populations in Florida at this point? It's, I mean, I moved to Florida in the mid nineties and brown anoles were just everywhere at that time. And it seems like that would be a native species, but of course it's not. Um, and every day I hear about some other um new uh, vertebrate that has been established in Florida. I mean, how extensive is this new world that's popping up in Florida? Uh, so I can actually give you a couple a couple numbers that I have. Um, there was a um, Crisco paper that was published in 2016. So as of that paper's um, 
what they put out, there are at least 181 species of uh, reptiles and amphibians that have been introduced to Florida, and over 60 of those species have become established in our breeding in South Florida. Um, so, I mean, it's a lot. It, it's a lot of different vertebrates that have been introduced, and that is just um, reptiles and amphibians. That That's not counting plants, um, insects, or, or anything else going on. To your knowledge, have any birds, are there any birds that are uh, non-native established? Yeah, uh, and so I'm not sure how established they are, but there's a whole bunch of different parakeets um, and different parrots. So I know there's macaws down here. I'm not sure how established they are, but they do pop up every now and then in different pockets throughout Miami. And there are um, a couple different parakeet species, different like Quaker parakeets yeah. and uh, all those down here. So there's a couple handful of different um parrots that that do pop up i'm so are you, are you familiar with the um the carolina parakeet i am not okay are you, are you familiar with conure parrots at all they're, yeah. they're sometimes called parakeets um it was a native north american conure essentially that was eradicated um between the 19th and 20th century and is now extinct and to your knowledge is there any conversation in your circles about how um, these established populations of parakeets and Quaker parrots may be filling ecological niches that were once... I mean, I guess you probably wouldn't know since you don't know about, you know, the, the Carolina parakeet. But um, that's something that I'm, I would be curious to know. Yeah, when it comes to birds specifically, I don't have a lot of knowledge um, on what's going on. But I understand what you're saying about how, like, um, if some of these, uh, you know, either predators or other smaller species can fill, can fill other roles... Um, within the ecosystem. I know um, with pythons, I've heard it put out there a couple times that people are saying, oh, well, you know, pythons will replace the panthers. And, <laughs> you know, which, yeah, it, so, you know, there's obviously a couple points, you know, there that you could go through and, uh, you know, they, they, they are definitely both top predators, but they, they fill different roles and they feed on different levels of the ecosystem. And, and they reproduce in a completely, in completely different way. Different way. Exactly. Yeah. So, like there are, there are, I've heard, I have heard people say that with the pythons before. So, you know, it, it does get talked about some occasionally, but you know, generally speaking, it, it, they're not similar enough. And with the parrots, I would think, uh, you know, there might be a species or two who may be able to fill a similar ecological role, but with how many different species are present. And I think, I really want to say there's, there's five or six different parrot species that, that are around. Um, and of course I'm not a hundred percent sure what their impacts are since I, I don't really work with them. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I would be, I would think that since it is more than just, you know, one species that has become established that, uh, they, while they potentially could fill a similar ecological role and, 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 fulfill that that missing role in the ecosystem um, just due to the sheer number of different species that are present uh, they probably end up really competing with each other in other um, species of native native birds really more so than just fulfilling that that missing gap just because right. there's more than one um, totally so just increases competition it's uh, so I'm I'm again really interested in this kind of stuff and, in, and here in Southern California in Los Angeles there are I believe 13 to 14 established non-native varieties of parrot that live in Southern California which is crazy to me and um, they haven't been determined as being invasive as far as I know and a major part of that is because so many uh, fruit and nut 
trees have been uh, planted throughout Southern California that like an entirely new ecosystem has been developed uh, alongside humans that these parrots are then taking advantage of. And it's like a really bizarre, fascinating um, angle to look at, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's very interesting to see like little little like pocket ecosystems form in the little niches, especially in um, urban habitats and urban landscapes. A lot of the times the native species we have have a hard time adjusting when the landscape becomes really disturbed and urbanized. So it's really interesting when you have those species come in and, and kind of uh, take up that space. Why do you suppose the tegus have been so successful? I mean, again, there are so many other species that have been introduced in Florida, but the tegus really seem to be flourishing, and their habitat isn't like a one-to-one -one replica of their native environment. So has there been much discussion as to like what it is about the, this environment that, they're, that has them flourishing? Uh, so the thing with, with uh, species that end up getting termed you know, invasive what I think it really comes down to is the adaptability of the animal. Um, you know, if you have an animal that like, yeah, the habitat is not necessarily exactly the same as they would have um, in their native range, but they are um, tolerant of different climates. Uh, so they're able to kind of adapt to the ecosystem where they have been introduced. Um, so it's not necessarily about, you know, is this is this habitat perfect for them? And that is something that that we're definitely studying and looking at and trying to figure out, you know, where do we see them more often? Do we find them mostly in, in urban areas and agricultural fields um, out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Everglades? Um, you know, we do look at that uh, when we're studying them and are trying to use that to figure out um, better ways to manage the population, to trap and remove them. But uh, generally what it, what it really comes down to, I think, is the adaptability of that, that species. If you have a species that has a very um, specific um, requirement for you know, it, its needs, to meet its needs, if it needs a specific temperature or a specific water feature, um, yeah. that would limit its ability to spread. So because tegus don't have that, that limit, they don't have that limiting factor. Um, they're able to exploit a wide range of habitat. And, yeah. and that is absolutely one of the reasons they're able to flourish is just because they do not have any super specific requirements to thrive. They're largely omnivorous and kind of like just like a generalist snacker, right? Yeah, they're like, like garbage cans. They just kind of eat yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, like the reptilian raccoon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, they, they eat a whole bunch of stuff. They various um, fruiting plants, uh, insects of all sorts, different grasshoppers, spiders, um, snails. I've, I've seen a couple of snails in diet before. They do eat snakes and lizards, um, turtles as well, and then, of course, the eggs. So they'll eat little yeah. eggs. They, we've seen them, um, we've gotten, actually gotten video of them on an, an alligator nest raiding alligator eggs, which, you know, is really, yeah, which is really the big concern um, is just, you know, they're taking alligator eggs. So what's going to stop them from going after crocodile nests? And if they make it closer to the beaches, um, you know, what about sea turtles? So, you know, yeah. it, it's definitely, definitely uh, a, a really big concern. Do you think that there might be a program similar to the Python pickup program established for the Tegu sometime in the near future? Uh, yeah, I think they are trying to um, potentially look into uh, contracting trappers in the future. 
Uh, I'm not sure uh, where they are when it comes to that. I know, um, I think I think last year they definitely had some contracted, tra at least one contracted trapper out. Um, but I think I think they they are going to try to push to get some some contracts out. So instead of having you know contractors go out and just like manually catch tegus, um, all the easiest way to to capture and remove them is by setting traps and checking them. So mm -hmm. um, I think at some point, maybe not as large as the pylon program. Um, yeah. But I, I think there probably will be um, contracts funding available for contractors to go and uh, trap and remove those tegus. I know there's a small, I was gonna say I know there's a small scale of that going on right now. There's for sure yeah. a couple of contracted trappers out now, but I'm not sure how much that will grow in the future. Totally. I wonder like how much of it has to do with like the the sexiness of a Burmese python, you know, this like twelve foot Burmese python versus like a three and a half foot tegu. You know what I mean? In terms of like the drive to get people independently hunting these things. I, I'm curious if, <laughs> how much of an impact that has on the movement. Yeah, that would be um, a really interesting thing if someone were to to go and study and and do a um, like a social study and see if how people react um, to tegu versus pythons. I think that would be a really interesting thing to see. But uh, I know I definitely think that that is you know your assessment is absolutely correct. Like the Burmese python is a big you know kind of sexy animal, right? It's big, it's scary. If you hand you got to hand catch them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a big feat. So it's like when you go out and you grab, you know, a 14, 15, 16 foot snake, that is, uh, you know, really appealing to people. And it's, you know, not only is it a, uh, a large animal to remove, but it's also an animal that people are really scared of. People don't like snakes. Um, lizards are a little bit more personable, uh, than snakes are. And so, you know, there's not as much of a, of a, uh, Ooh, you know, you caught a big lizard. Like that's just not a sport <laughs> thing. I caught a 15 foot snake. Yeah. I definitely think that the, the appeal of being able to catch these, you know, monster snakes definitely um, takes away from people's enthusiasm for the lizards, but it, you know, it doesn't make them any less um, of a threat. Totally. I, I'm also very good. So, you know, there's those rhesus macaques in central Florida. Yes. I'm, it feels like with, I mean, wouldn't you agree that Florida has fairly lax laws concerning like exotics compared to most of the country? Um, uh, I'm like kind of in the middle. So, you know, since I, I, I do think that a lot of the laws that they have could, could be, um, tightened for sure. Mm. I, I personally am of the opinion. I, I don't like, um, I know they've tried to ban a couple species recently. I personally am not a fan of bans, but I, I do like regulation. Um, and I'm not familiar with all of the regulation for all the different species, but, uh, given the issues that, that, you know, we're having here, um, it, it probably would make sense to have a little bit more stricter regulations on different species. Um, not only that, but, you know, Florida is very, is a very, uh, just, per, I guess, particular place. You know, we have a whole lot of ports. There's a, a huge animal trade going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, things, things escape, whether they escape on cargo ships on their way here, on planes on their way in, um, or while they're in the possession of, uh, you know, people who have them as pets or people who are planning on selling them. Um, there's definitely a lot of... Um, a lot of you know places along the along the road from the time they enter Florida to the time they potentially you know are are become a pet at someone's home where they they could potentially get out 
And so I think, I think more regulation is, is definitely a, a good way to go. But as far as comparing it to everywhere else, I think that is one of the things that makes Florida so unique um, is that you can come here and you can have all these different animals. So it's a, it's a fine line. I, I myself keep a couple different reptile species. So it's definitely uh, something that I, I get, feel pretty conflicted about me because as much as I love and support regulation, I also, um, you know, find myself between a rock and a hard place because totally. I, I know people who keep, you know, keep animals that I would never keep, but that they keep them very well and they keep them, um, you know, in great enclosures and they give them a great quality of life. But then, you know, there's always going to be people who are on the opposite end of the spectrum who maybe keep animals that should be kept better or in better condition or in more secure enclosures. And so, you know, it, 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 what it really comes down to, I think, is the, the laws are, are, nece are not necessarily a little bit lax, but I think the way that they are enforced, um, I think, probably could be better. Because I think the way that the laws are structured right now really just... Uh, they make it difficult. They make it difficult on the people who are trying to enforce them, and they make it on the difficult difficult on the people who need to apply them to what they're keeping. Mm. Are are you familiar with the um, the hippo situation in Colombia? I'm not. Oh, uh, uh, Pablo Escobar had a zoo, um, and he had a small population of like four or five hippopotamus. And um, when he was, you know, uh, allegedly killed, and his compound was taken over they didn't know how to handle the hippos. So they just kind of left them. And now there is a growing flourishing population of hippos throughout uh, this particular region of Colombia. And um, there's tremendous opposition in um, uh, culling and managing the hippos from the, the local populace. And it's just a wildly fascinating situation to me. And I was just curious if you had heard of that or you're familiar with that at all. I was not, but that is very interesting and a little, I mean, hippos are not a joke. <laughs> no, no. And, that, and that's kind of what I was talking about, like my concern with like the lax uh, exotics, like knowing that there's so many people with like lemurs and all these charismatic megafauna down there that, you know, could easily just establish themselves somewhere like the Everglades, which is very nearby. Um I wonder how people would respond to that when, you know, when you have a big, sexy, scary snake versus some larger charismatic animal, you know, like what is going to happen there? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, that would be a really interesting thing. I hope it never happens, but I definitely can see how, how something like that may, uh, may cause an outcry from, from the public, especially when you do have those, those cute, cuddly animals. Yeah. I feel like it's only a matter of time. Unfortunately, people, don't like animals getting killed right you know they don't like them getting euthanized and so these animals are destructive and um they need to be managed in some way and unfortunately the only means of really doing that is uh you know euthanizing them um right. do you, have you come across much opposition to the culling of the pythons and the the tegus in your time okay okay i get what you're saying you talked about the mammals first and i was like I was like, I don't yeah. know. I guess people would be angry about, you know, euthanizing mammals. And I was like, I'm not really sure. But with so with the pythons and the tegus, um, you're always going to have people who who don't agree with it um, and, you know, think that everything, you know, deserves to live or deserves a home. Um, you do see it. 
Um, I, I don't have a lot of experience with with any pushback on it. Um, to me personally, I, I haven't gotten any crazy emails or messages from people, um, you know, being super upset about it. For the most part with the Pythons, um, I know people get really upset because they do kind of get uh, flaunted. You know, here's this giant snake that I just caught. And you know, most people look at those animals and think, a trophy um, where you have, you know, especially within the reptile community, a lot of the times the the thought process is more so like this animal deserves to be treated with respect. And I, I definitely have seen, especially with, um, you know, various Python hunting hunters um, going out and posting, you know, what they have on, on social media and, and trying to get all of the attention I, I have seen, you know, online and in comments on, on social media platforms, like people aren't, aren't very happy with the way that they're being presented. I think a lot of people generally understand um, why it has to happen, but the way that it's being pushed, especially with, you know, the drive to promote this kind of stuff online, um, it, it really does have a little bit of a pushback, but not necessarily like a, a straight outrage. I mean, uh, you, we see it all the time. Just, you know, say something about, uh, you know, trapping and euthanizing feral cats and people get very, very upset. So I've never seen anything to that extent. Um, you know, obviously people get very passionate about, um, you know, fuzzy furry creatures. And, you know, although I, I work with teggies and, and pythons and, you know, unfortunately have to euthanize them pretty regularly. Uh, I, I don't think I would be comfortable euthanizing, you know, say a cat, <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, there's definitely that that disconnect you have. Um, but also it depends on the the experience you have with it. If it's something that's normalized um within society, then then it does make it a little bit easier. You know, the snakes and the lizards, people don't generally the general public don't really like them. So you don't get a lot of pushback. You don't get a lot of uh, you know, people coming after you as long as um things appear to be humane and uh, you know, aren't being, you know, if you're not parading around a dead animal, uh, people don't really seem to, to say, say, too yeah, much. they wouldn't notice necessarily yeah. it's, unless they're confronted with the imagery. Yeah, exactly. Have you had any like really harrowing experiences in your adventures in the Everglades? Uh, probably. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those things where it's like after doing it for so long, you forget what's normal and, and what's not normal. Yeah. Um, there's definitely been a handful of, you know, I'll call, I call, I like to think of them as like happy, I call them happy endings, um, where we definitely have had a few animals that, um, you know, different reptiles, there's been um, a couple different, like some, like small mountain monitors, like savannah monitors, and I believe there was um, a rhino iguana, just a couple different animals that, you know, escaped or got, got away from their owners who were reported and they were able to be captured and then um, either used for um, other outreach and educational um, opportunities. And, you know, as we've discussed previously, a lot of the times the animals that, that are captured after being released into the environment um, or escaping, unfortunately, um, you know, they're, they're their ends through euthanasia. So um, there definitely have been you know, some, some happy things where we do get, get species that are able to be used for educational ambassadors or used for other uh -huh. outreach programs, which I think are really awesome. Um, as far as any like super crazy, exciting, uh, stories, you know, I had a 
you know, I don't know. I don't really find it that exciting. <laughs> it's just, it's just normal now, but I did have, um, you know, the, the, the pythons kind of follow you everywhere. And I did have a day um, last year or I guess 2019 now where I was driving home from a day in the Keys and I happened to stop on the side of the road because I saw a 10 foot Python. Um, you know, at the time I didn't realize it was a 10 foot Python and I'm, I'm about five <laughs> feet tall and 115 pounds, you know, so I'm quite small and, uh, you know, so I did happen to be having a nice, fun, casual day on my way home from the Keys and, and did stop and actually captured and removed a 10-foot python by myself on the side. Wow, of good on you. Um, you know, I was actually on the phone with a friend and was just like, I think I just saw a python in the grass on the side of the road. And, you know, sure enough, you know, backed my car up and was able to, you know, find and, and catch the snake. Did you have like a bag handy or something? Um, I did. I did. I keep my work stuff in my in my vehicle at all times um, so that I have it with me if I need it. So I did have a bag. I had a, you have to transport them in locked boxes. So I had a bag, I had a lock box. Um, so I was able to, to catch it and get it in a bag by myself. And that uh, is so rad. It was, it was, you know, it was one of those things like, I was like, it was a moment. I, it definitely surprised me, but you know, most commonly it's just, I was, I was on my way home. I wasn't expecting it. And so they, they do tend to pop up at the, you know, the funniest of times. Um, but I was able to actually catch it, bag it, bring it um, to my work office so that we could deal with it accordingly. And I was actually on my way to one of my friends. Um, he has a six-year-old daughter who had a dance recital. So I was able to do all that. And I still made it <laughs> before she went on stage. Um, so it was, it was a, it was a crazy day. <laughs> You're 21st century ecological hero <laughs> and and um in your time in the everglades have you encountered any american crocodiles yeah actually i have i've um i the other aspect when i'm not doing invasive species work i'm able to help out on a couple projects actually surveying um, american alligators and american crocodiles um, in the everglades and surrounding management areas so i do encounter them quite frequently that's cool do you have a favorite um, uh, Everglades friend? I mean, by that I mean uh, animal of the Everglades, native. Oh, my favorite. My so my I loved. First off, I love turtles. So if I come across any native turtle um, species while I'm out, I am thrilled. I always say it's never a good day until you see a turtle. Um, <laughs> and if you see a turtle, then you know you're you're sad. Doesn't matter what happens the rest of the day. You could you yeah. know accomplish anything. You can accomplish nothing if you got to see that turtle. You're you're happy. So I I love turtles. Um, my first Same. favorite turtle are soft shells. Um, yeah, I love Florida soft shells. And then. Um, other than that, my other favorite things to see are the yellow rat snakes. I think yellow rat snakes are just one of the coolest uh, species out there. Um, and, you know, that just might be, I'm, I'm originally from Maryland. So in Maryland, we just have black rat snakes. Yeah. And so coming to Florida and seeing these beautiful, beautiful. yellow yeah. snakes that, you know, get just as big as, as the northern rats, uh, like just just so cool. So I really love them as well. So those are probably my top. Any turtle and then the yellow rats are, are my 100% favorites. Do you have any pet turtles currently? I do. I do. I actually have um, two diamondback terrapins and two um, Rhodey Island snake necks. Oh, cool. How long have you, you have a diamondback terrapin? I do. There, I have I have two two little ones that are, are, are relatively new additions. I think I've had them for 
oh, three or four months now. So they're teeny teeny. They are the most yeah. magical freshwater terrapin I've ever seen in my life. You are so lucky. They are awesome. They're actually one of my, uh, one of the first uh, species I ever worked with was diamondback terrapins um, in Maryland. So my first research experience actually while I was still in college was working on a nesting project with terrapins um, in my in, right next to my hometown in Maryland, and uh, I live right off of the Chesapeake Bay. So I was able to work with a um, a research project with them on one of our Navy bases, or I guess it was an Air Force base. But uh, so that was a lot of fun. So that was my first research experience, and then that's where my love of turtles came from. And now I work oh. with lizards. Oh, what is what a swoon-worthy <laughs> little world. Oh, it's so great. I, I, terrapins are just, they're super cute. They have a ton of personality, just awesome, awesome animals. Do you, do you attend any, um, reptile, reptile festivals or cons? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, I do, yeah. I do. yeah. I mean, I, I will just like spend like 20 minutes every time just marveling at all the little baby diamondback terrapins, not only because they're so beautiful, but because they're now in a place where they can be they're you know, their, their numbers have you know, raised so much in captivity that you can now commonly see them at reptile shows is just like kind of miraculous and wonderful to me. Yeah, they're really cool here. They're, they're regulated. So I, I think you can only have two in your possession right now at a time. So we don't see them in, in hordes or groves or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. They are, they are around They're They're, uh, they're not as scarce as they, as they used to be. I mean, coming from Maryland, they're very protected up there. Um, so the fact that I could even come down here and see some of them at a, at a Repticon was really cool. Ironically, my interview with Jenna was filmed late last year. And today, as this episode was being scotch taped to completion, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission has agreed to pass new legislation against the threat many of these exotic reptiles pose. After years of the Everglades being overrun by invasive reptiles, the state is taking action tonight. And the move is sure to throw a wrench in the exotic pet trade. Local 10 News reporter Janine Stanwood is live to explain. Janine. And most people agree that the exotic pet trade is what got us into this mess in the first place. So today, wildlife officials met. They took comments from members of the public, and there will be new rules pretty soon. Invasive tegus and iguanas have overrun our native ecosystem. And today, after an online meeting with public comment, Florida wildlife officials made the decision to ban people from owning, breeding, or selling them, as well as other so-called high-risk reptiles like Burmese pythons, which are already banned as pets. Am I bagging them or what? Yep, we're bagging them. Proponents of the ban say these reptiles, when let loose, have already wreaked havoc on our native ecosystem. But there's been pushback from breeders and sellers who argue they've been helping to get rid of the invasive species and selling them gives them incentive to keep hunting. Tegu hunter Rodney Irwin, who we met near Homestead, says he's on the fence about the new rule and is in contact with other breeders around the state to figure out what to do next. And at last check, Fish and Wildlife commissioners were still meeting. And so the details about these new rules, they still haven't even been posted on FWC's website. We keep refreshing. One thing we can say, though, is that if you do have a pet green iguana or a tegu, right now you can keep it, but you have to have a permit. Again, those rules, those regulations, they will be posted soon. We'll stay tuned.
Up to 16 species of non-native reptiles have been effectively banned from being owned, sold, or exported from the state. For better or worse, this move has seemed to me to be almost inevitable. All the same, my heart is heavy for each and every party that may be affected by this outcome. Before we conclude the Dinochirus and the Everglades two-parter, I'd like to end on something on a little bit of a brighter note, Jurassic Fantasies. A while back, I put out a call for any interested Jurassic fans to join me for a future Jurassic Fantasy segment, and you're about to experience just such an exchange. Alice joined me all the ways over from England, and we had a thoroughly delightful time chatting about her love of Jurassic, her hopes for the future of the franchise, and her two adorable Python pals. So what, how, what is your uh, relationship with the Jurassic franchise? How did it start for you? Uh, wow. For me, um, it started when my dad sat me down and said, oh, because I, when I was younger, I had these boxes of dinosaurs um, that like, I used to play with and stuff. And um, he said, oh, there's this uh, film that I think you're old enough to watch now. I don't think it's going to scare you because it came out the year I was born. So um, uh-huh. he was very much like, I think, I think you're old enough to watch this now. And I was about eight and he was like i think you'll be fine you'll be absolutely fine you know what these things are they're not real all this sort of stuff on the screen they're not real um and i remember being sat there and i was so excited i loved it so much that like the the t-rex everything was great until the classic kitchen scene and i was just i was hiding away oh yeah couldn't couldn't stand it um managed to go back and rewatch it and loved it um and then from there i anything jurassic i just i want i needed it so um we watched the lost world together um jurassic park three um i watched my dad um because i was still quite young he would watch them first and just make sure that there was nothing too crazy Uh um and lost world i was absolutely fine with jurassic park three was really funny because he was like okay this one's a little bit the dinosaur's a bit bigger, so I don't, you, you know, be careful watching it. If it's scary at any point, we pause it and this sort of stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And I burst into tears at the most weird, for him, the weirdest moment. Um, and it's when um, the juvenile T-Rex is killed by the Spinosaurus. And I was bawling my eyes out. Like, I, couldn't, I don't think that's so weird. Oh, I, we had to stop the whole thing. And my dad was like, what's wrong? What is it? Oh, my God, what, what's wrong? I thought this was fine. I was like, I killed the T-Rex. I've done it. I can't believe it. He was like... <laughs> like, what that's what <laughs> he thought i was going to get upset with the um that makes sense to me yeah yeah but it just oh but i, I really i think from there it, it kind of grew um and uh yeah just anything drastic since then it's been like christmas and birthdays there's always like a t-shirt or yeah. a, a figure or something um we like this year for for well last year for christmas we got a jurassic park um doormat so you know it's still ongoing (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah there's no sign of it stopping for me that's for sure no definitely um so uh, would you say that you've had a fascination with dinosaurs and animals prior to seeing the movie definitely um so when I was really small, I'd, obviously I don't really remember how it exactly started, but from what I understand, my nan and granddad gave me a um, brachiosaur that I've got in the other room. And it's it's actually, I could never pass it on because it's actually one of the really old classic lead painted ones. So it's like, you can't, you can't Ooh. do anything with it. 
um do anything yeah. with that yeah <laughs> it's just gotta stay away um but back then obviously we thought it was fine and the tail's got like little bite marks where i've chewed it when i was little and stuff and um and yeah so it grew from there and then um yeah (laughs) and then my parents showed me the uh, (laughs) um and uh yeah the cartoon kind of aspect of dinosaurs came up and i used to watch um it was called the dinosaur family or something like that it was a really random tv show and i watched dinotopia and it all kind of built in um and then as I've got older yeah. and ended up with the Jurassic films, that actually then sparked an interest of what could I have that is like a dinosaur, but not a dinosaur. Um, so now I, I keep snakes. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so it's kind of thrown that interest in and, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I love dinosaurs. Uh, I just when I was younger, I just had some sort of fascination with them that I don't even know where it came from because my parents, they like them, but they're not like mad about them so yeah it just kind of happened <laughs> yeah. What, yeah what what kind of snakes do you have uh i have um ball pythons i have two of them um oh and, cool uh, yeah one of them's actually called blue after our lady um oh <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah they're um they're pretty cool um and uh the other one jasper has a um a black stripe across his eye which is quite similar to the um uteraptors in the walking with dinosaurs series so i get excited about that sometimes <laughs> how old are they um so blue is she's not even a year old yet um she's still quite small and jasper is a year and three months so he's almost fully grown um but yeah they're both still young bless them oh cool <laughs> How, what what do you think it is about the about the Jurassic franchise in particular and the Jurassic world that that connects with you so strongly? I think it's it's the constant start like each film starts with people being like this is wrong you shouldn't have done this um these animals shouldn't have been brought back and, and they don't even look the way they would and there's all this moral argument but by the time you get to the end of the, fi- the film someone kind of finds some sort of connection or some sort of understanding and empathy for them, which I just, I think is amazing. Usually in like monster films, it's like you kill the monster, it's gone. But actually, aside from the um, Indominus and maybe the Spinosaurus, um, they've not actually actively tried to kill them. It's just been, we need to get away and we need to leave it alone, which I really respect. Um, I think the characters as well, especially for me in Jurassic World, the Owen and Claire, they're, their kind of friendship slash relationship slash whatever it is in um, Fallen Kingdom is, uh, I think it's really good fun. And it adds that element of, you know, these are genuine people. They're not just kind of props in a dinosaur film. They're, they're there and they're, they, they give yeah. you something to connect to as well. Um, and seeing people run away screaming from a dinosaur is always entertaining. <laughs> it never gets old. Yeah. No, it's not about what dinosaur Wh- Which, is. it really doesn't. Yeah. Uh, which which of the films would you say is your favorite? Probably. Oh, you can't ask me that. Um, I think it's probably um, a little bit controversial, to be honest. But I actually think that um, Fallen Kingdom is probably my favorite. Uh, I know I can watch all of them any time of day and love them all, but there's something about the way they've taken dinosaurs in so many different areas and 
it's exciting no matter whether they're in a park or um, on a separate site B or, or wherever they are. The fact that this was the first time that they were properly introduced, they were supposed to be like in a location. I know that obviously with the Lost World we had the the, the tyrannosaurs on the on on the ship, but with with Fulham Kingdom, it's like well the island's gone, so there's nowhere else for them to be, and how they kind of navigated yeah. the moral implications and and how that progresses, and then to throw into the mix what I thought was a really cool looking hybrid. Um, which I think is very realistic. I think that if if that technology was available, I do think that people would go, okay, yeah. I mean, you, you see it like as as Claire Deering says herself, people look at a Stegosaurus like it's a, a, a an elephant at the zoo. You know, people would eventually get bored of it, and so of course they would end up mixing it up yeah. and, and seeing what they could make. So the fact that it then went from that innocent kind of we just want to you know, entertain people to warfare, I think is very, it, it progresses the way I think it actually would. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah the, the flow of the film, the references to, to other films in it as well, I really love with the Indoraptor tapping the claw and Maisie pushing down the shaft and, you know, everything like that. I yeah, think it's yeah. just really nicely done. So yeah, probably not the one people usually would admit to, but yeah, for me, I think Fallen Kingdom was really nicely done. To be honest with you, I also really have a deep appreciation for Fallen Fallen Kingdom. Like mm. it's probably my third favorite of of them, which is also as you said very rare. Like it gets yeah. a lot of hate and I there's I have a lot of issues with it, like so many, but yeah. there's something about it and I attribute a lot of that to J.A. Bayona and Oscar Farrow's cinematography and the way they did that. Just like it's just mm. a beautiful film to watch and the animals look incredible and it it, it has a lot of really interesting Crichton um moral questions in it that haven't yeah. really been present in, in a lot of them. And and I, I really love it too. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you are a fan as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's an opinion I don't always voice, but at the same time, it's like, wow, you know, it's the end of the day, they're films, they're there to entertain and they're going yeah. to entertain people in different ways, aren't they? So yeah, definitely. Um, have you seen season two of Camp Cretaceous yet? I have. <laughs> I saw it the day it came out. I watched the entire thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, immediately. Me too. How did you feel when they shot uh, the Baryonyx? Oh, God. Because that was, as far as I can tell, like kind of the first time mm. a dinosaur was shot and killed in a Jurassic uh, um, film, actually. Yeah, it really shocked me, um, especially um, the way that obviously I, I know that we um, as, as adults appreciate Camp Cretaceous for all the Jurassic Park reference and, and being in that franchise, but also the fact that you know, I work with children as my normal job. So to then, for them to be brave enough to put something like that into into the episode, I was like, wow, okay. Uh, and it was, it was quite upsetting to watch because, you know, you're, as much as, yes, they're the scary kind of villain type dinosaurs throughout the, the season, it's very much, you, you don't want them to die though. <laughs> you just want them to go away. <laughs> So yeah, it was it was yeah. a big shock, but I'd, yeah, I I appreciated them for doing it, and I did I did think it was um, I think it fitted. I didn't think it was out of place that they did it. It was just shocking that they did it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I really love Camp Cretaceous. I think they're doing really really awesome things. I mean, in the second season, some of it really stretches the suspension of disbelief for me, but mm. I, I really value what they're doing with 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 it. What they what they can do with it in that context, I really appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. 
yeah and it's um it's hard sometimes i think to look at it and and remember that it is actually aimed at at younger people so you know some of the things they say in it i know there was a big controversy over the stegosaurus plates <laughs> dare i mention it um yeah but um yeah you know at the same time there is the 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 argument that i saw a lot going around which is well actually they're not actual dinosaurs that they're going to have defects naturally if you if you look at the books that their defects are actually much less looked at than they are in in the original book um in the films yeah 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 but it's also kind of the whole this it is for children and they're gonna say something that that probably is just a throwaway line and they probably sat there afterwards looked on twitter and went oh <laughs> why <laughs> um oh, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, the paleontologists are here run away i think for for what it, it's trying to do and you know for for me it's so lovely that they're creating something that is more child friendly that means that younger people are going to have interest in dinosaurs and as they get older and if they continue that interest they'll learn that things that are said and and are portrayed aren't exactly accurate and that they'll learn that in their own time but the fact that they're trying to bring these films down to a level where younger people can enjoy them without being scared because the animatronics are scary like the first jurassic park film yeah. i still sit there at the kitchen seat i could probably describe it to you word for word what happens but yeah. i still sit there like <laughs> so you know to to be able to to give children something that is that little bit you know calmer to an extent but at least cartoonized so it feels yeah. like it's you know easier um i think is is brilliant so yeah i I, i've got a lot of love for it to be honest with you (laughs) oh me too i love it so much and so like there's a like a like a like kind of like an asda big department store thing here in the u.s called target yeah and uh i don't know if you're familiar but there's one that just opened up a few blocks from where i live here in la and you know i can't do anything here because everything's shut down in la and i live in a little shoebox so like i go to the walk to the target walk back from the target but one of my favorite things to do is to look in the toy section and see all the little kids like freaking out over the dinosaur toys. Like every single time I go, there is a little kid losing his mind or her mind over a dinosaur toy, a Jurassic toy, and, uh, you know, walking around with it and playing with it. And it 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 fills my heart with so much joy to see that yeah. it, it's 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 a great time to be a dinosaur lover. I, oh, I, I love it. Yeah. And I mean, as well here. um, I've noticed where I mean I work with uh, very much early years kind of children so really small kind of age for, like the oldest child I think I've worked with is four years old um but because of where where the Jurassic World films have come out and it has caused this big stir up again I see so many more children in like just dinosaur patterned stuff whether it's Jurassic Park or not oh yeah um and we have like I personally make sure we have dinosaurs in the room for them to play with but um they are so much more readily available and and, um you know you know children are trying to say their names and stuff it is quite funny but you know they're they're trying and and I really wish we had Target here because those toys look really good um (laughs) but sadly we uh there's nothing in my local shop unfortunately what is your do you what are your Jurassic fantasies in your heart of hearts what would you love to see in the future of the franchise I I really want them to especially with Dominion and everything that that's that, that that's coming up especially with everything kind of culminating in this one film 
I I really want the dinosaurs to live. I don't want them to have done all these films and have done all this moral, should they be here, shouldn't they be here for, you know, the most delightful little girl that we all wish we were, pressing a button and letting them out. Um, even after her horrific first impression of a dinosaur, um, you know, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the way to learn that what you think a dinosaur looks like um yeah i just think it'd be such a shame if they turned around and were like oh yeah so uh they got out so we did what we could we sanctioned it and they all we got rid of them all like i would love to see um just just little things like um maybe they have a radar system that says what area the t-rex is in a bit like if you you know um, i believe there's um, like tornado warnings and stuff and sirens and stuff maybe they have stuff like that Mm -hmm. instead to say oh massive carnivore in the area go inside you know um yeah yeah i would love to see them flourish and and just see like i said like just in a herd of cows there's just a stegosaurus wandering around like yeah i'm just here it's fine um and people have just kind of got used to them um i'd love to see more types of dinosaur included um i think it's really like it's easy to put the like the stand let's say standard no dinosaur standard but the ones that we all know um like obviously velociraptor is the only raptor that's shown and another kind of thing i would love to see is um the whole kind of we got a couple of video snaps in um in fallen kingdom but i'd love to see like a i don't know maybe a, a netflix original of uh owen with the raptors when they're smaller and and watch that progression um and just see and actually just see how Jurassic World was built and how they actually after the disaster of Jurassic Park and then obviously everything that happened in the Lost World and then Jurassic Park 3 how after all of that the the government somewhere still went yeah go on then why not yeah. <laughs> you know um so I'd really love to see like the creation of Jurassic World how did Claire become uh, and and get to where she is um how did Henry Wu stay you know around after that you'd think that he'd be like nope you're suspended from making anything ever again but um you know he's he seems to thrive in any situation so it'd be really interesting to to see um so it's just something like that i'd love to kind of go into like the details of stuff we already have um you know i mean to be honest if they put a a gopro on the t-rex i'd follow it around and just watch a live cam of that so you know oh yeah i never thought about that that would be so rad it wouldn't, and you know, someone would do it if the, if yeah. dinosaurs actually end up oh, coexisting yeah. with people. It'd be like you'd have like um, live stream, like people, if people Instagram lives, watch my Stegosaurus roam around here. You know, watch watch my Triceratops do this, or oh, I managed to uh, put my GoPro on a raptor. Watch what it does. Like you know, it would happen. People would. Um, it'd be you'd see yeah. TikTok videos of yeah. people with dinosaurs. Like it'd just be ridiculous. <laughs> um so i'd like to see um yeah kind of that kind of side of things i'd love to see the progression and how how it all came about how did they get that permission how did people come in charge become in charge um and how did they decide what dinosaurs to create that's the that's the big thing i think how Mm. did when did they decide okay um we know we can keep uh a compost ignathus so let's try a t-rex like what was the progression you know you don't go from a compu yeah, to yeah, a, a tyrannosaur yeah. um and uh yeah but i'd also like to see um i'd, I'd love to see a uh it's probably a pipe dream but i would love to see and sit and watch um paleontologists watching the jurassic park films and talking about 
um how much like that they would change if it was them and and that kind of thing i think it'd be really interesting yeah, yeah. to get like the scientific yeah, yeah. take on it um that and, i have uh, to tell yeah, you having that's a very controversial sort of thing. People get very, I mean, you're on Twitter. You've seen it. Like, people get very yeah. upset. It's a very contentious debate these days. It's... Yeah. It's heated. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to to kind of just say, look, they're, they're films. They're based on fiction. Yeah. Um, and they're, you have to remember that the, the, the dinosaurs in there look the way they do because of drawings that depicted what they would look like these then continue and, right. and snowball on and 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 that's how yeah, you know yeah. if i show a child a picture of of a of an actual velociraptor the way that um, paleontologists believed it looked to one of the children where i work yeah. they would be like no show them a picture of blue and they'd be like blue raptor because that's what they've learned yeah. and i understand that that's, yeah it's just problematic it's really because like it is because that was like the 80s, you know, like that was the 80s. And now it's so pervasive that even though we are well past that because of that, it's still continuing. So like kids today yeah. are like so far behind, you know, so it, it, it is a complicated yeah. issue for me, at least. Um, but I, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. I think it's time to move past that with the next phase of the franchise. I think. What are your hopes for Dominion? Oh, um. Uh, I think I hope that they don't do any more of the big kind of hybrids. Um, I think yeah. that's kind of been explored and I love it. I absolutely love them, but I think to do more, especially with the Maisie storyline, I don't want it to go into, you know, people clone yeah. ethics. There's plenty of films about that. Like I want it to stick with dinosaurs. Um, my hopes are that we get, a lot of Alan and uh, uh, Ellie time, hundred uh, yeah. percent. And uh, you know, I just I'm really looking forward to the the interactions between the old and new characters. Like I, I cannot wait to see yeah. to see how they actually interact. I I don't want uh, Doctor Grant to like Owen. I don't want him to. I don't want it to be like this. Oh yeah, yeah. you know, we both no. like dinosaurs. I want it to be. Yeah. No, no. They should, they should be in the ground. I dig them out of the ground. That's where they yeah. belong. And he's obviously going to be... Yeah. I almost really want a scene where you have um, Alan and Owen stood there and they're talking about whatever, disagreeing, whatever, and then Blue will turn up and you have Alan being like, oh! <laughs> and Owen being like, oh, hey, Blue, <laughs> you know, I just I just think that'd be so funny yeah. and it would be a really interesting dynamic. Um I'm really hoping that we get a lot of T-Rex time, but safe T-Rex time. I don't want anything to happen to, to Rexy. That's yeah. just not allowed. Um, yeah. And uh, I just, I want it to be, I just really like for it to be really satisfying and just an ending that is just, you know, it doesn't have, for me, it doesn't have to be some big shock. It doesn't have to be some crazy, you know, over the top ending, just something that's like, you know what, it all accumulated to this dinosaurs just live with us now everyone deal with it it's fine um <laughs> is what i want um, but, <laughs> yeah uh, whether i, I mean me too not, that's what i want yeah yeah so they're, yeah. they're kind of my hopes it's just some really good dynamics and um and lots of lots of dinosaurs and t-rex time 100 percent. 
Uh, well, Alice, thank you so much for participating in this. It was such a joy and pleasure to chat with you and, and have you participate in this. No, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. It's nice to kind of chat with people, um, especially yourself, about uh, different things to do with um, the Jurassic franchise because it all kind of lives in my head and it's nice to actually of chat course. about it. Yeah. Especially with, when we've got very similar opinions on it. It's nice to be like, yeah, I think that too. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me for this installment of Neo Jurassic. Until next time, bye.